Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And let me defend myself in why once in a while I need to remind you of Catholic heresies and prove them wrong from the Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, but in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. And here are the false doctrines. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused, if it be received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. So there is my charge and job description that we include from time to time some reminders of the doctrines of devils, seducing spirits that will arise in the last days. Turn your Bibles now with me to Luke 11. Luke chapter 11, let's take up a few more warnings of our Lord Jesus Christ against Roman Catholicism and its many errors that have infected, blinded, deceived, and ruined millions and millions and millions. No other denomination can even be measured as a percentage over the last 1,500 years. We've been over this one before, so it'll just take us a moment. Luke chapter 11, verse 27. It came to pass, as he spake these things, a certain woman of the company lifted up her voice and said unto him, Blessed is the womb that bare thee, and the paps which thou hast sucked. But he said, Yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. This was the first Mariolater who instead of focusing the worship on Jesus Christ, wanted to call down blessing upon Mary. Blessed is the womb, the womb that you were in, the mother that you had. She must be a great woman. The breast that you sucked. What a privilege to have nursed the Son of God. This woman must be great. Blessed is this woman, the first Mariolater. The Catholics have statues of Mary, songs to Mary, prayers to Mary, Mary this, Mary that, Mary, Mary, Mary. Jesus said, Yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. If you hear the word of God today and you believe it and you want to keep it, you are as close or closer to Jesus than his own mother. Because that little act of conception and then delivery, gestation and delivery, is really quite inconsequential from the standpoint of a womb and breast. What is consequential is those that hear the word of God and keep it. You are the mother and the brethren of Jesus. And if we were to turn to other passages, we have that as well. That's Matthew 12. Jesus was told, your mother and your brethren want to see you. He said, who is my mother? Who is my brethren? These are my mother and my brethren. These that hear the word of God and keep it. What a blessing. You were just saved from something. You don't understand how much you were just saved from. You don't remember, you don't know, possibly, that there are millions, there are tens of millions and there are hundreds of millions of people that worship and pray to Mary, have statutes of Mary, because they're blind about this subject. 
But Jesus dealt with it. And these are the wholesome words of Jesus Christ. And let me say again. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 11, he is proud, knowing nothing. It's my job to remind you of these things. We're never going to be moved from this. Lord, help us. Look at Matthew 26 and verse 7. Matthew 26 and verse 7. This is a little more obscure, but it's one of my favorites. I remember as a child totally missing the point of these words. Matthew 26. And verse 27. Matthew 26, 27. This is part of the Lord's Supper. The last Passover that Jesus Christ had with his apostles. He took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. Drink ye all of it. I remember as a little boy sitting and taking communion. Please don't get grossed out. You've heard, some of you have heard this before. I had the cup of grape juice as a boy. And I heard the words, drink ye all of it. So I thought that I shouldn't left, leave any in the cup. So I made sure I stuck my tongue in the cup and got the last few drips of the bottom. Because Jesus said, drink ye all of it. Well, that's, drink ye all of it. Do you know what the words mean? All of you drink of the wine. Drink y'all of it. Because if you go to the other gospel accounts, you will find out that Jesus divided the cup up and distributed it to all the disciples and then told them to drink. Meaning, this is very important. When you go to a Catholic church and go to the Mass and it's been this way for 1,500 years, though they're compromising a little tiny bit now, only the priest got to drink the wine. You got the host, you got the cracker, you got the wafer God, but you didn't get to drink the wine. The priest drank all the wine. Now they give a couple of the attendants who pass out Jesus in the form of a cracker. They let them drink some of the wine, but the priests drank all the wine. That's why many priests were often drunkards, because they drank all the wine. And the people never got to drink it, so they had to have a whole set of doctrines made up that Jesus fully, body and blood, soul and spirit and divinity, are in both species. Meaning... That when you eat the cracker, you get the blood, and when you drink the blood, you get the cracker. That's what they believe. They had to make all that up because they didn't want to submit themselves to this verse. Drink ye all of it. All of you drink of this wine. I love the Lord. I love the Bible. So the little foolish child interpreting it as, I can't leave a drop in the glass or I'm displeasing the Lord. The verse actually means everyone partakes of the wine and everyone partakes of the bread. That's why when we get to 1 Corinthians 11, we break the bread, we drink the cup, and everyone participates. That's not true in the Catholic Church, but Jesus cut it off at the pass with Matthew 26 and verse 27. Look at Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Follow with me for a moment. Who was the first pope according to the Bible? Who was the first pope in the Bible? Peter was the first pope. Yes. And they believe in celibacy. That means a priest and a pope cannot have a wife. But they believe that Peter was the first pope. But Jesus wants you to know something about Peter. And Peter's wife. And Peter's wife's mother. 
So in Matthew chapter 4, in verse 18, well, verse 18 is him calling Peter. This is where he ordained Peter to be an apostle. Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, verse 18, saw two brethren. Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They straightway left their nets and followed him, and they became two of the twelve apostles. But if you'll come over to chapter 8 of Matthew, Matthew chapter 8, we've seen there that Jesus called Simon Peter. Matthew chapter 8, verse 14, and when Jesus was come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother laid and sick of a fever. And he touched her hand and the fever left her and she arose and ministered unto them. Peter had a wife. So Jesus there is cutting off the fact that they chose Peter as the first pope, but Peter had a wife, even though they haven't let a pope have a wife since then. The doctrine of the Bible, the the wholesome words of Jesus Christ. If any man teach otherwise and not consent to these wholesome words, he is proud, knowing nothing. I just want you to believe that the Bible has the answer to every doctrinal heresy. As long as you'll learn the Bible, it's all there. And we want to learn it, we want to remember it, we want to teach it, we want to defend it against anyone who would speak otherwise. Look at Matthew chapter 12. Jesus saw the doctrine of Mary's perpetual virginity coming. The Catholics believe that Mary was a perpetual virgin. She never had sex with Joseph. She never had sex with any other husband she may have had. She was a perpetual virgin. Now, Matthew chapter 1 tells us that the angel appeared to Joseph and said that he was not to know his wife until she had brought forth her firstborn son, meaning that as soon as you can get her home from the hospital and she's ready and the doctor says it's okay, then go ahead. That's what it means. But we come to Matthew chapter 12 and we have this further detail given to us. I've already referred to these verses. Matthew twelve forty six. While he yet talked to the people, behold, his mother and his brethren stood without desiring to speak with him. His what? His mother and his brethren. His brothers. What do Catholics do with a verse like this? His cousins. What problem do they have? They have a problem because there's Psalm 69 in the Bible. Because if you'll go back and read Psalm 69, Jesus in prophecy calls them my mother's children. <coughs> Those are not cousins. <coughs> your mother's children are not your cousins. But Jesus in prophecy calls his brethren His mother's children in Psalm 69. Oh, there's so much more that could be said. Look at Matthew 23, 33. Matthew 23, 33. How many compartments in the afterlife do Catholics have or have they had for many years? They have heaven and hell. What else do they have? They have limbo and they have purgatory. So there's four afterlife places you can go. Limbo is a place for unbaptized babies. Purgatory is a place where you, you are a sinner, but you're not very bad. And if you're a widow, we'll pay enough to the church and get enough candles and light them, we can get you out of purgatory and into heaven. Matthew 23, 33 says this, Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? There is no escape from the damnation of hell in a place called purgatory. These are the wholesome words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus knew that that church would teach that there was no divorce for any cause. Therefore, in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 19, he actually gives an exception when he says, except it be for the cause of fornication. And so he gives an exceptional clause to counteract their doctrine that there is never grounds for 
divorce. Jesus saw that they would sprinkle babies, so when he was baptized, Jesus went down into the Jordan River and came up out of the water in Matthew chapter 3. And that was fulfilling all righteousness according to his words. He saw infant baptism coming, so he wasn't baptized until he was 30 years of age. Luke chapter 3. Jesus saw the inquisition coming in which those of us who believe the Bible and follow it against the Catholic Church would be persecuted. He rebuked the spirit that was in James and John about what they wanted to do to the Samaritans. When he said, if we run into a blind person, let them fall into the ditch with the blind that are following them. But we don't use violence to spread the kingdom of heaven. Jesus saw vestments coming. Look at Matthew 23 and verse 5. Have you ever spotted a nun in public? Is it hard to spot a nun in public? Is it hard to spot a priest in the airport? Or does he wear clothing that gives himself away as a holy man? Because he wants you to think that he's a holy man. He wears these ridiculous clothes. Black. Backward collars. A habit. That's a head and headpiece over a nun's head. They wear this weird clothing in public. Listen to what Jesus had to say. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 5. But all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments. They wear clothing in public to try to give themselves away as being something special religiously. And Jesus Christ condemned it. Jesus saw papal infallibility coming. That means that popes, when they speak, are infallible. And so he rebuked Peter on a number of occasions, their first, an illustrious pope. Peter was never a pope. I say that just because they claim he was, but if they claim he was, then they ought to look at how Jesus treated him. And he was rebuked several times for being in error. He also denied the Lord Jesus Christ and was guilty of hypocrisy and doctrinal compromise at the church that was at Antioch in Galatians chapter 2. Look at John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Jesus knew that people were going to spray paint a piece of cloth in France a few hundred years ago and call it the Shroud of Turin and worship it as the burial cloth of Jesus. Jesus knew all. You know that Jesus knew all that, don't you? Do you think the Shroud of Turin surprised him? No, he knew it, so he, was, he made sure he was buried a certain way. Do you want to see how he was buried? John chapter 20 and verse 7. When Simon Peter enters into the sepulcher, verse 6, Simon Peter following him went into the sepulcher and seeth the linen clothes lie. And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself, do you know why you have John chapter 20 and verse 7 in the Bible? That's for you to know that the Shroud of Turin is a lie, whether you know anything about carbon dating or not. We don't need to know anything about carbon dating. Carbon dating has been proven to be false so many times. We have John chapter 20 and verse 7. Jesus was buried in two separate claws. One went around his body, one went around his head, and they were separated in the tomb after he rose from the dead. It's not one cloth with a picture of his face on the top part of it and his body on the bottom part of it. Go home and Google it, Hannah. Shroud of Turin. And get a picture of it. You can go to our website and we'll have some nice things to say about it. Jesus was buried in two different cloths, not one. Why is that in the Bible? Because the Bible is a wonderful book of truth. 
It doesn't matter how many popes, how many committees, how many scientists swear to the... How can a scientist swear to the authenticity of the Shroud of Turin? They've never seen Jesus. They weren't there. They're removed from it by 1,500 years at least in the formation of that cloth. It doesn't matter how many men say what. The Bible's already spoken. There were two separate cloths. Ah, there's so much more that could be said. Fee income... What did Jesus think of fee income in the church? He sat down. He sat down. What did he do when he sat down at a workbench? He took himself a baseball bat, sawed off the thick 18 inches at the end, so he had a nice handle of about 18 inches long. And he took leather cords and he made himself a scourge. Then he went in there and had a little chat with those who believed in fee income in the church. To do anything in a Catholic church or to have anything done with you, you pay for it. You want to get married by a Catholic priest, you pay for it. Everything gets paid for. You want to buy a candle so that you can pray your dead relatives out of purgatory and into heaven, you pay for it. For those of you who have read the the book, The Fifty Years in the Church of Rome by Charles Chinique, do you remember when the Catholic priest came and took the only cow that he and his widowed mother had to sustain themselves? Do you remember that? Terrible story. Joy Taylor's mother, grandmother, grandmother, Grandmother was a Catholic and her husband was not. And she was that Joy Taylor's grandmother was a Catholic and her husband was not. She was, but the priest told her, you're supposed to be giving money to the church, but my husband doesn't give me any. Well, then go take it out of his wallet while he's sleeping. True story. Basically, it may not be perfect in all the details. That's basically the story. This is what the Word of God has to say about that. Jesus made a scourge and joy and drove the money changers out of the temple, saying, You have turned my Father's house of prayer into a den of thieves. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ would say. They say that you can get to heaven via Mary, via saints, via popes, via priests, that can absolve you from your sins. Extreme unction is the absolution from any sins you haven't confessed. But Jesus said, No man cometh unto the Father... But by me, and Frank was saved from Catholicism by John fourteen six. Thank you, Lord, for such words. Look at Acts. Let's move to a new subject. Acts chapter twenty. Acts chapter twenty. In Acts chapter twenty, do you, do you have any red writing? Mark, you got some red writing in Acts chapter twenty. Okay, we want the red writing because we're looking for the words of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul has just spent the last twenty verses. Speaking to the elders of the church at Ephesus, the last time he's going to see them, reminding them of how he taught them to guard against false teachers and to hold fast to the truth of the gospel. And he works his way down to talking about his conduct, how hard he worked to prove to them that he was not in it for the money. Verse 33, I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yea, verse 34, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. I have showed you all things, how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I I hope you understand the context. Look at my hands. You Ephesian elders know how I worked when I was among you to support myself and anyone that I had in my company. I showed you all things, how you ought to work the same way so that you can have some extra money to help the poor. 
Because, remember the words of the Lord Jesus, and we have it in red. It is more blessed to give than to receive. We don't have that in the gospel accounts. Those are words of the Lord Jesus given to Paul, who gave them to the Ephesian elders, who wrote them down for us by Luke the Apostle. By Luke. There we have it. Do you believe those words? It is more blessed to give than to receive. Children, which is the best birthday party? The one for you or the one for your parents? Listen, for those of you who don't know why, I just know that I took my foot and ran it up to my knee and my mouth. Today's my birthday. Why? And I did not think about that when I said that sentence. But that isn't good either. Stop while I'm ahead. Let's go to the next point. It's more blessed to give than to... It's more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus taught that. Who was the greatest giver of all time? The Lord Jesus Christ. What other giver did he make mention of that would be spoken of in the churches of Jesus Christ throughout history? A little widow woman who gave two. And what's the big name for this large chunk of currency? A mite. Go look that little word up. Two mites. She tossed in the treasury. How much of her savings was it? How much of her income? All of it. She gave. And at the same time, there were limos pulling up and they were dropping in big bags of coin that were making lots of noise. According to Matthew chapter 6, they were having trumpets announce their arrival in the streets before they gave. And Jesus saw the widow because it's more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus said things like this to comfort us, encourage us. Look at Matthew chapter 20 about giving. Matthew chapter 20. Giving in any way, not just money, not just in the church, service, help to others who need it. Matthew chapter 20, verse 27. Whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. If you want to be chief, if you want to be great, if you want to rise in rank in the view of the Lord Jesus Christ and in his churches and among his saints, if you want to be chief, let him be your servant. Then become good at serving, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. He didn't give just a little bit of money. He didn't give just a little bit of service. He gave his life as a ransom for many. And that's who's great in the kingdom of heaven, those who serve. This is the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can count on them, truer than anyone else you can ever read, right here. Those are the ones that are great. If you don't serve other people then you're not great at all. You're a self-righteous, pompous hypocrite. Because if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then you want to get out and grovel and help other people and get down to their level and condescend to men of low estate and help them. Just like our Savior gave us the great example of it. And we want to be, we want to have that true of us. Look at Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. It's Luke 21, the first couple of verses that tell you about the widow and her mites. And it's a wonderful little observation that the Lord Jesus Christ made. Luke chapter 14, look at this where Jesus speaks about giving and serving. He's been invited to supper. He doesn't always say the most polite things. Sometimes he's making a lesson and it may not sound very polite, but he's just been invited to supper. Verse 12 of Luke 14. Then said he also to him that bade him. He had just given him one object lesson. That, you would, that when you go into a, a place to eat or to sit or an assembly, you should always pick the lowest seat 
and let the one in the master of ceremonies call you up to the front, that's how you get honor. Don't go up to the front and have the master of ceremonies tell you that you need to go to the back and make room for someone else to sit at the front. So we come to verse 12. Then said he also to him that bade him, When thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again, and a recompense be made thee. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense thee. For thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. Isn't that wonderful? That's wonderful doctrine. That's the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you're going to have a dinner, when you're going to have a feast, when you're going to celebrate and you want to invite somebody, invite those that cannot repay you. Because Jesus will repay you in the great day of judgment. That leads us to, I hope you see that very clearly there. That leads us to Matthew chapter 25, where it says, When all nations are gathered before him, he will separate them. And and say to those on his right hand that are the sheep of Christ, he will say to them, when I was hungry, you fed me. And they'll say, Lord, when did we ever feed you? And he'll say, when you fed the least of these, my brethren, you fed me. That's Jesus on giving. What a doctrine of giving. Right down to who you invite to dinners at your house. We've already dealt with rank in Matthew chapter 20, where it said, if you're to those that are to be chief are the greatest servants. Jesus appealed to the Gentiles. The great ones among the Gentiles are those in authority over others. But in my kingdom, those that are the best servants are of the highest rank. And so Jesus turned the the ordinary organizational chart upside down. And if you want to be great in the sight of the Lord Jesus Christ, then be the greatest servant in this church. Serve others. Not looking for anything in repayment. But because Christ has served you, he laid down his life for us. What wonderful, wonderful wisdom from the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he took a little child. He called a little child. That that child was old enough to believe on him. Don't you think that when Jesus called a child in Matthew chapter 18 that he was teaching infant baptism? Because it says, Whosoever shall reject one of these little ones that believe on me. It were better for him that a millstone were tied about his neck and he was dropped into the sea. But it's one that believed on him. They had an active conscience. That's what the kingdom of heaven is made up of, little children that believe on him. And except ye be converted and become as little children, you're never going to get in. That's wonderful wisdom. Look at Matthew chapter 5, which some of you would have read last evening. Let's, let's hit relationships for two minutes. Relationships. The Pharisees had a system of relationship wisdom that if somebody hurt you, hurt them back. Ye have heard. From the Pharisees, in Sunday school and in seminary, ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, they teach this, but I teach this. You have heard an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The words come from the law of Moses. The application comes from the Pharisees who were applying it that when anybody hurts you, you have a right to hurt them back. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth had become not a specific rule of civil judgment, but a general rule of how you were to get along with other people. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. Do you know how many people have taken that and said we shouldn't ever criticize anybody that's doing evil? It says resist not evil. What kind of evil is it talking about? Personal acts of harm. 
Small ones. Don't resist them. Let somebody hurt you in some little way. So what? The only thing that's been hurt is your pride. When it extends way beyond your pride into your pocketbook, then you can start to get concerned about it. But until it does that, it's just pride. I say unto you that you resist not evil. And then he tells you what evil he's talking about. Whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, it doesn't say take away thy wife and children. It says take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. It doesn't say whosoever shall compel thee to worship a statue of Buddha. We've got to rightly divide the word of truth. Do you know how many times these verses are confused? This doesn't mean we can become total pacifists. When somebody's breaking into my neighbor's house at night, I'm going to resist you by calling the police, loading up 3-inch Magnum 12-gauge shotgun, and letting them taste a little bit of lead. Why not? What in the Bible would hinder me from that? That's not somebody coming up and calling me a name or smacking me on the cheek. We're not supposed to lay down over everyone that does something evil against us. The Apostle Paul didn't stand in a Roman prison, and as the centurion came to him and rolled up his sleeves and girded on his leather so that he wouldn't be hurt by his own scourge, he didn't say, hurt me, brother, and when you're done, do it 40 more times. He appealed to Roman law to protect himself from getting the first stripe. Well, why didn't he do this? Why didn't he say, now that you've beat me on the back 40 times, here's my front? Because that's what Jesus said in Matthew 5. No, because Paul understood it the way I'm teaching it to you right now. It only applies to small little acts of personal harm. Where your pride's hurt and not your person, wife, children, or livelihood. Giving up a coat because someone wants your cloak or giving up a coat because someone wants your coat, that's that's not going to hurt you much. Go get yourself another one. If a Roman soldier wants you to haul his stuff a mile, take it two miles. Why curse him and bring down the wrath of that local garrison on your little village? There's so much wisdom in the Bible. If we would just live this way. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Verse 43, another point in relationships. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. That's the Pharisees. Love your neighbor. Those people that are good to you, you be good to them. Those people that love you, you love them. We could turn to other verses. What did Jesus say about that? If you love those that love you, you're no better than any sinner. Because sinners love those that love them. Who's a real righteous person? Who's a real follower of Jesus Christ? They love their enemies. They love those that... Let's see what it means to have an enemy. Verse 44. But I say unto you... I love the Sermon on the Mount. Every few verses, a new point of doctrine, you have been taught wrong, I'm teaching you the truth. But I say unto you, love your enemies. These are not the enemies of God. These are not the enemies of your nation. These are your personal enemies who did something to offend you a little bit. This does not mean that when you go into combat and you've got your M14 on the ready and you see somebody in the sights that you love your enemy. You love him to his eternal reward, whatever that might be. These verses are taken and abused. When it says, love your enemy, it's the person that offends you and hurts you. Bear with it. Love your enemies. Here's the description. 
Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Here's a description of an enemy. Someone that curses you. It doesn't say someone that comes into your house at night and rapes your wife. I'm not mad at anybody. I'm just mad at false interpretations. And I hope I preach it the way Jesus Christ did because when he got done with these three chapters, it says the people marveled because he spake with authority and not as the scribes. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That's the kind of enemy. Someone that curses you. Someone that hates you. And someone which despitefully uses you. That means to despise you and treat you as a thing of no value. And they persecute you. And if you do that, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. Do you love every word? Every word. Look what this says. If I can learn to do that that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. Jesus is telling me a secret of the kingdom of heaven. If I can learn to overlook people doing things to offend and hurt me, then I can be, I can have the character of my Father in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good. God does good things to the evil. He sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? What good is that? If you just love the people that love you. Do not even the publican so? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? We've just had to find for us exactly what it means to love your enemy. When you have someone that hates you and despises you, when you meet them in public, do you go the other way? Do you turn your back? Do you sneer at them? Or do you salute them? Good morning, Joe. On the job. Good morning, Joe. Joe hates your guts. He's done things against you. He despises you. He talks against you, but you meet him on the job. Good morning, Joe. Because you salute those that don't salute you back. If you salute those who, who if you only salute those who salute you, you've done nothing. What's your reward? What's, how do you deserve a reward? How's that like your father in heaven? God sends his rain and his sunshine on the evil and the good, the just and the unjust. Verse 48. Be therefore perfect. Now, when it says, be therefore perfect in this context, is it talking about every single aspect of your life? No. But do you want to be perfect in one area of your life and be like your Father in heaven? Even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And what point of life is this? Love your enemies. Salute that person that doesn't like you. Sarah, when you go to school and someone doesn't like you, Sarah, when you go to school and someone doesn't like you, make sure you greet them in the hall. It, it's the best revenge. And, and the Lord said that. In Romans chapter 12, it wasn't, the, it wasn't in red writing. It was in Romans chapter 12 in black writing because the Apostle Paul taught it for the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember? Heat coals of fire on your enemy's head. Overcome evil with good. Don't try to overcome evil with evil. Overcome evil with good. This is the highest standard of relationships that's ever been taught in the history of the world. Right here. There's no peer. This is the religion of Jesus Christ. This religion does not mean that we're pacifists. We are not Quakers. Listen. They might find a firearm or two if they ever took a look through our houses. Just one or two. Because we're not Quakers. And we're not Mennonites. And we're not Amish. Because we understand these verses. They don't understand these verses. Thank you, Lord. Relationships. You really want to advance in love? Then love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength, and learn to love others as you already love yourself. That is beautiful. And as you would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. 
you want men to recognize you and flatter you and do nice things for you, then why don't you recognize others and flatter them and do nice things for them? That's how the Lord Jesus Christ teaches us. How committed was the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you ever heard these words before? Wist, wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? How old was he when he said that? Twelve years old. Who did he say it to? His mother and his father, Joseph, his legal father. Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? When you read those words, do you wish you could go back and be a better 12-year-old than you were? And if you don't, why not? What a wonderful 12-year-old. Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? He was already committed to serving God at the age of 12. How about this one? Luke 17. We don't, you already know it. I'm out of time. Luke 17, and, I've, and I'm not out of material. Luke 17. Where are the nine? Where are the nine? What does that sentence do to you? Have I ever been among the nine? I don't want to be among the nine. I want to be, I want that, be that one Samaritan who falling down on his face and with a loud voice glorified God and thanked him that he was clean of his leprosy. The other nine just went running on their way. Where are the nine? The words should haunt us. Luke 17, 17 is where they're found. The story of the ten lepers that were healed by the Lord Jesus Christ. We should hear those words and want to be the most thankful people that we can be. Have you ever heard the words or read the words in the red writing? I have not found so great faith. No, not in all Israel. If you're ever reading the Gospels and you're thinking, I'm just a dumb Gentile. Oh, oh, Jesus could see a dumb Gentile with faith and say, I haven't found such great faith. No, not in all Israel. Do you know who that was? A Gentile centurion of the Roman army. Do you know what he said that caused Jesus to say that? He said, Jesus, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. I have a servant that is sick. I'm a man under authority. I tell this man to go. And he goes. I tell this man to come and he comes. I tell this man to go do that and he goes and does it. If you will speak the word, my servant will be healed. I know that you have that kind of authority. That is great faith. Do you have that great faith? Is he a man in authority? The Lord Jesus Christ? Can he say go visit the church of Greenville? Can I... Please give me a couple more. I love this one. Come. Come. Storm. Boat. Peter in the boat. Jesus on the water. Peter sees him. Lord, this looks exciting. Bid me come to you. Oh, yes. Come. Peter jumps over the gunnel onto the water. He's excited for about one second. Don't we get excited for about one second sometimes? We hear the truth, we go to obey it, then we get scared off. Oh, there's a lesson here. Oh, there is a lesson. I'm not trying to entertain you. There is a lesson. He looks around, he sees the winds and the wave boisterous against him, and he starts to sink. And Jesus has to rebuke him two verses later by saying, O ye of little faith, why did you doubt? You asked me if you could come. I said come. Then you began to doubt. Oh, Lord, I want to get married. I won't look your way anymore. Oh, Lord, I want to get married. 
Then you get married and you start to doubt. Is this the one the Lord wants? It's too late to ask that question. You don't ask that question after you're married. Because Jesus has said, come, by giving you a spouse. Don't look at the winds and the waves. Come. I'll take care of you. Come to me. Don't doubt. Wives, you read in the Bible that you're supposed to be a submissive wife? And you think, well, if I don't protect myself, who will? Come. He'll protect you. Come to me on the water. I don't have a job and I don't know what I'm going to do this week. Come to me. Come. It's one word. It's a Bible story. It's simple. It's powerful. Come. Give ye them to eat. Jesus, listen, you've been preaching for seven hours. They haven't eaten all day. We've taken attendance. We've got 5,000 men. We've got 4,921 wives. And we've got 17,000 children. How are we going to feed them? Give ye them to eat. You're a husband. You're a father. You hear what's expected of fathers and husbands from the word of God. I can't do that. I can't do it. It's too much. Jesus says, be a father. Please, hear the lesson and let it weigh into your soul. Give ye them to eat. But Lord, we've only got five loaves. Give ye them to eat. Here's some for you. Here's some for you. It's, we were told it's bottomless refills. Here's some for you. And they fed the whole crowd. Because Jesus said, give ye them to eat. When you doubt, the Lord can multiply. We say this often. The Lord can multiply your loaves and fishes. You just use your loaves and fishes. Whatever you've got, use it. Give your reasonable service in taking up what the Lord's given you and charged you to do. Make your reasonable effort and go to bed. It is vain for you to rise up early to stay up late. And it's vain for you to go shopping for bread for 17,000 people. Okay, there wasn't any Walmart grocery store nearby where the Lord was. So there's none of those things available. So when the Lord calls upon you to do something, just go do it. He will make up the difference. If you doubt, you'll sink. If you don't believe, when you divide, there won't be any blessing there. Go to bed and sleep on it. Don't get up early. Don't stay up late. Don't eat the bread of sorrows. When he's asked you to do something that you don't think you can get done, go to sleep on it and tell him that you're turning it completely over to him to multiply your loaves and fishes. But what you have, you're going to give. But right now, it's time to go to bed and rest on it. That is what he wants you to do. That is a life-saving verse for melancholies. Psalm 127 and verse 2, I call upon it every single week at least. Every Saturday night, always, because I have nothing. I don't like our financial system any better than anyone else. I probably know as much about it as most. But whenever I think about it and it gets me irritated, I hear the words, show me the money. Okay, Lord, here's my money. Here's what I'm using. Well, it says a Federal Reserve note at the top. Son, you must have already submitted to the Federal Reserve as your financial system. Otherwise, why are you carrying their picture and their inscription around? I say, settle, Lord. 
I like the things just the way they are. I'm going to go spend it. I'm going to go earn it. I'm going to go spend it. We live in an unconstitutional system. Jesus, I want to show you the power of his argumentation. They came to trap him. They came to trap him because you know what every Jew wanted to do? They wanted to raise an army and go burn up the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had their own financial system and they forced it on the nation of Israel called tribute. We don't have anything like that. We live prosperously. We don't have foreign troops occupying our cities, making us carry their stuff, living in our houses and eating our produce. We don't have the best financial system in the world, but I'll tell you, we live the best in the world. And Jesus would say, show me the money. You've already admitted that there's a de facto government and a de facto financial system in your country by the fact that you're carrying around their paper. That's good. Thank you, Lord. One more. You've heard, you, you know all these. If, we, if you didn't know all these, we'd have a bigger problem than we have. Do you know what I mean? This, these are the Gospels. When, when you're praying, if one, if one of your children came to you, I preached on this. How old are you, pup? 21? Two? Ooh. I preached on this 22 years ago, or 21 years ago. And I asked, if, if, if a child came to you and said, Daddy, could I have a red bicycle? And you had the means, and they were a decent son, would you want to get a red bicycle? If they wrote you a note and put it under your pillow, Daddy, could I have a red bicycle? I had a little guy that wanted a red bicycle. All that's to say that the joy that was in my heart to have a request made that I could satisfy, and I was excited to be able to do that. When he asked me, he didn't know that I already had it in the trunk. <laughs> but you know what? All that, you know all that I'm saying? Not that I'm a good dad. You know what I'm saying? The Lord Jesus Christ would say, if you being evil get excited and warmed, and want to do something for your child when he asks you, and you're an evil father compared to our Father in heaven, then how much more is your Father in heaven going to give good things to those that ask him? Is that powerful? That's a secret of the universe. Forget who discovered Bolivia. You know, I don't care. I don't even care if there is a Bolivia. I don't care if Bolivia has a government or a capital. I don't care what language Bolivia speaks, and I don't care what they do for a living. I don't care how many telephones exist in Bolivia. None of that matters. But do you know what matters? A secret about how heaven operates. If you appeal for something to your Father in heaven, he has more joy and excitement about giving it than we do toward our children because we're evil and he's good. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for teaching me that and 1,000 other things. I hope you love reading the red writing in your red-letter edition Bibles. I hope you love the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you know that we will not consent to a man that teaches anything else and that doesn't consent to the wholesome words of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that you know that we've heard the Son of God speak from heaven and that we ought to tremble before his words and believe every one of them. Lay hold of them. These are the axioms of life. These are more important than if A equals B and B equals C, then A must equal C. That is an axiom, but these are axioms of life right here. May the Lord bless you to love them and to love the giver of these words, the Lord Jesus Christ, the preserver of these words, the Holy Spirit of God that gave us the word of God. May we live by these words. May we think these words, speak these words. May we look at a word like Mary and know how personal God's relationship is with us through Jesus Christ. May we see a single word like come. 
And we'll get excited about whatever the Lord's asking us to do because He's going to take care of us. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.